Welcome to the Soul Grit Podcast. I'm Ann Taylor McNeese, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I also love Jesus, and I'm passionate about all things gospel and therapy. I created Soul Grit to be at the intersection of mental health and Christian faith. Christ followers need a place to ask questions and get answers about mental health. Join me as we dive into real stories and real questions from people who want to honor God with their hearts, souls, and minds. Hi, welcome back to the Soul Grit Podcast. This is Anne, and today I'm here with Becky Castle-Miller, who is our guest today. She's a New Testament scholar, but also an expert on emotions and discipleship. And so I'm really excited to have you here today, Becky. I can't wait for this conversation. When we were just chatting online before we started the podcast episode, I just noticed how much we have in common. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it too. One of the things I like about podcasting so much is that you get to meet like the most fascinating people and just have conversations with them that you wouldn't normally have. So right about stuff you're both passionate about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when you find somebody who kind of fills that little niche that you're already in, it's really exciting to make that connection. So why don't Mm -hmm. you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and, and how you got to where you are? Yeah, absolutely. I am a mom of five. And I was living in the Netherlands with my family for eight years before we moved back to the U.S. in 2020 during the COVID lockdowns. Um, And we moved back to the U.S. so that I could start a Ph.D. at Wheaton College with Esau Macaulay. I had just finished my master's in New Testament at Northern Seminary with Scott McKnight. Um, While we were in the Netherlands, I was working at an international church as a discipleship director and helping coordinate pastoral care and train our small group leaders and preaching um, and really discovered how important emotion was to spiritual life. So I decided to pursue a PhD looking at emotions in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And now I told you before online that I got this kind of like nerdy fangirl feeling when I saw like the mentors that you've had, these are like really important voices in New Testament scholarship and in the formation of, of Christians today. So Congratulations on having those um, experiences, and I can't wait to see what you as that next generation kind of bring to us, especially because you're a female voice in that area is super important. So I think maybe I'd like to start out today with you telling us um, why did you start getting so interested in emotions and, and why do you think it's so crucial that we as Christians pay attention to them? Mm Mm-hmm. I think most researchers, when you hear their, their research interests, you can trace it back to the personal interest of their research. So mm-hmm. I think every researcher has a story behind right. what personally interests them in their topic. Um, for me, no different. I grew up in a Christian tradition that taught me to ignore or suppress my emotions. And so I was, I was pretty emotionally uneducated going into college, young adulthood, marriage, And in my twenties, I had a real emotional breakdown, um, that was a result of undiagnosed postpartum depression, but also years of emotional suppression, um, that kind of hit a breaking point. And so thankfully I was able to connect with a good licensed Christian counselor and she taught me how to feel my emotions, how to let them exist in my body, how to give myself compassion instead of judging and criticism. 
Uh, and that started my healing journey. I also had a wonderful psychiatric nurse who helped me get the right medication to deal with the postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I realized I was just lacking any knowledge about mental health and emotional health, and they were impacting my life and they were impacting my spiritual life as well as my normal everyday physical life. So I got really interested and I started digging into these teachings. I had always heard about emotion and realized a lot of what I had been taught was not biblical. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot of the negative messages I learned about emotion, those messages were being perpetuated by spiritually abusive Christian leaders. And so very early on in that journey, I started studying spiritual abuse and the connection between bad teaching on emotion and mental health and, and spiritual abuse. Um, and so I've been researching spiritual abuse in, in the Western church for probably 15 years now, uh, alongside emotions. Uh, I started trying to write a book a few years ago uh, while we were living in the Netherlands about Jesus emotions. Cause as I read the gospels, I saw how emotional Jesus is. And then I realized I didn't have the research skills to do that right. Mm. So, and and at the same time, I was really discovering my pastoral calling and gifting. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go to seminary to both learn how to research at yeah. that level uh, and also to get the skills to teach the Bible well as a pastor. Yeah. Um, so my master's thesis was on emotions and discipleship and Jesus emotions in particular. And my PhD dissertation is on um, more Jesus followers emotions and how he shapes his followers emotions. So I've looked at both Jesus emotions and then his followers emotions. Mm -hmm. And I've just, as I've reviewed the literature, most of the pop discipleship books or like the common discipleship curriculum used in churches today. And over the past 50 years has not touched on emotions or emotional health. It's just completely absent from the conversation. Or if it's there, there are negative messages about emotions. So I would just love to bring transformation to discipleship yeah. and, and bring in the value of our emotions, just like Jesus did. Yeah. So that's, that's what brought me to this work. <laughs> well, tell me, what is your vision? Like, what do you think discipleship could look like? Hmm. So many things. It's one of those things I think so much about that it's hard to talk about concisely because yes. I have so many thoughts. Okay. Discipleship is uh is helping people become better followers of Jesus. Right. Um, you know, if you are in a role where you get to disciple people, what you should be doing is not making them look like you, but making them look like Jesus or helping them look like Jesus. Um Jesus invited people with an open hand to come and follow him. And that is what I think discipleship should look like. It's extending that open hand of invitation to people and saying, come follow Jesus with us. Mm -hmm. Um, Not overbearing, not authoritative, not coercive, but an open invitation to follow Jesus together. Um, And as we grow in Christ's likeness, we will be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit in every aspect of our lives. And that includes our emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In what ways do you see emotional health transforming this process of discipleship? Mm-hmm. When church leaders focus on their own emotional health, they're going to be able to do a better job of leading others closer to Jesus. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I think all leaders need to attend to their mental and emotional and spiritual health. Mm-hmm. Um, because then they can support 
those they're discipling in their mental, spiritual, physical, and emotional health. Um, if we neglect the emotional aspects of our discipleship, then we could grow in prayer. We can grow in spiritual disciplines. We can grow in Bible study. We can grow in community and even service. But if we leave out emotion, we leave our emotional life unformed, untransformed, uninfluenced by the Holy spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can end up being very emotionally immature even as we grow in other aspects of our lives. And then we end up unbalanced mm-hmm. and we can cause so much harm uh, to others. When we're emotionally immature, we can damage our relationships and really undo a lot of the good that God's doing in other aspects of our lives. I really think we need to bring our emotions to the cross in the same way that we bring all other aspects of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. We've had other discussions here on the soul grit podcast about how you really can do a lot of damage if you haven't attended to your own stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or if you have faulty beliefs or a faulty theology of emotions, then you're going to inflict harm on people right whether that's in your own family or if you're in a in a ministry capacity right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah well go back you had mentioned that you had studied uh spiritual abuse Mm -hmm. and just give us your real brief working definition so people know what we're talking about here Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well all abuse is really an entitlement to power and control over other people And that's going to be the key characteristic in any form of abuse. I appreciate that in the UK, they've worked on encoding in law, these ideas about coercive control. And I wish that we had more of that understanding in the US. Coercive control is, is the heart of abuse. And so in spiritual abuse, it's when a spiritual leader is coercively controlling other people that they then have spiritual power and authority over. So it's that entitlement to, I get to control your life. I get to tell you what to do. You must respect me. You must obey me. And I get to punish you if you don't do what I want you to do. Mm -hmm. And the punishment can be subtle. It can be, you know, you fall out of favor. You sort of get kicked out of the inner circle. You're slandered or talked badly about or gossiped about. You're removed from leadership positions. Um, Abusers will only use the amount of power they need to, to control the people they're trying to control. And usually no more than that. Mm-hmm. And they will not abuse everyone because part of the process of staying in power as an abusive leader is grooming people to think that you're good and safe mm-hmm. so that when victims do speak out, you have this whole chorus of people willing to say, well, he's never treated me that way. Yeah. You know, she's never done that to me. So, you know, you must be wrong. So. It, it's an it's an entire manipulation strategy to gain and then maintain power and control over other people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted you to clarify that because I think a lot of um, cultural understandings of if you talk about abuse in the church, some people might automatically think of like some of the sexual abuse scandals that have happened, mm-hmm. or or people who are using verbal abuse in the church. Um, but what we're really talking about when you say spiritual abuse is this, what like exercising control over somebody's life because of your mm-hmm. position of spiritual authority. Right. Yeah. And so I wanted you to talk a little bit about um, where people might um, 
be experiencing that or how how they can understand what emotions are coming up through that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you say where they might be experiencing that, do you mean like in what aspects of their lives or? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think it's important to attend to the protective system that God created your body with. Mm-hmm. If you feel unsafe, you very likely are unsafe. If you feel um, like you're walking on eggshells around certain people, if you feel like you have to manage other people's emotions and reactions, uh, if you feel like you can't do certain things because it would make someone else unhappy, those are all signs that you're in an abusive relationship with someone, whether that's your pastor, your small group leader, your partner, uh, or even a friend or parent, like any time that you, maybe the easiest question is to ask yourself, what happens when I say no to this person? Mm. If you say no to a healthy person, they might be disappointed, but they will own and manage their own emotional response to that. They will deal with their own disappointment within themselves. Mm-hmm. their emotions are not your problem because they're an emotionally mature, healthy person. So you should be able to say no to any person at any time and trust that they'll manage their reaction to that. It's yeah. fine for them to express disappointment. Um, but if they lash out at you, mistreat you or punish you in any way for your no, or they manipulate you into finally saying yes, like they put pressure on you, coercion, guilt, that is a sign that it's a pretty unhealthy dynamic. Now that doesn't automatically mean it's abusive. They might just be an immature person. They might not be a healthy friend or, you know, a healthy person. Uh, I'm not saying that automatically means they're abusive, but like not respecting your no is sometimes the first clue you have to look further to see if it is abusive. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Now you had mentioned to me earlier that in your coaching business, you do some, some coaching around emotions for um, private Mm. clients and that almost everybody that comes to you that says they have problems with their emotions is somebody that has experienced some type of abuse. Can you say more about that? Yes. So often, whether I'm talking to friends or my clients, when people say I am really struggling with my emotions, once we get into it, I find that what they mean is I have big emotions that make complete sense given my circumstances, (laughs) but because they think that to be a good Christian means that they should be always joyful, always peaceful, always calm, able to bear up under anything, always respectful, always submissive when their anger flares up or they have this deep well of sadness or self-loathing or um, jealousy or you know, rage coming out, they they think their emotion is the problem Mm -hmm. or a deep resentment. Um, A lot of Christians will use the word bitterness, Yeah, but I think that's a very Christian-y word and resentment might be a better emotion concept than bitterness Mm. because often what people are feeling is like they're being trampled or asked too much of and their resentment makes complete sense. I would not call that bitterness or they like, I'm so unforgiving. I'm bitter toward this person. Okay. Well, what did that person do to create that in you? Oh, they sexually abused you for 10 years. Okay. You're not bitter. You have PTSD. Yeah. And so 
very often when Christians are talking to me and saying, I have emotion problems, I say, as we get into it, actually your emotions make complete sense. Your emotions are totally valid. And they either the reason your emotion is outsized for, you know, you stub your toe and you go on a screaming, cursing tirade. Okay. Well, the reason that that emotion was outsized for that instance is because you have PTSD. And so, you know, that triggered something in you. And so you're not experiencing that emotion because of what happened in this moment. You're experiencing that emotion because of what happened to you five years ago that you haven't had a chance to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are, are saying like, either my emotions are outsized or too much, or like, I'm completely numb. I don't have any emotions, which is another trauma response. Mm-hmm. So very often I'm finding that people's circumstances, uh, the way that they're being treated or abuse in their past is what is giving rise to their emotions and their emotions make sense. It is the circumstance that is the problem, not them. Yeah. So it sounds like a big part of what you do is helping people learn to validate emotions that are valid, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or really get to the root of, okay, where's that emotion coming from? What, what is, what is communicating? What is it communicating to you? If you really listen to it, what's actually going on underneath that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it seems like at some point, like some of your clients would also need to experience some therapy, some mm-hmm. EMDR, something to help clear out the trauma that is um, creating that outsized reaction in the first place. Absolutely. And that's what I tell so many of, both, again, both my friends and my clients or, you know, people who've come to me for pastoral care. Like, have you considered seeing a trauma counselor about that? <laughs> um, just so much referring to to licensed therapists because it is so important to talk to someone, not just who's a licensed counselor, but who's a licensed trauma counselor if Mm -hmm. if they're dealing with PTSD. Because the modalities that we have available now to treat trauma are incredible Mm -hmm. that work with the way that God created our brains and bodies that actually heal Mm -hmm. the brain damage the dysfunction of our amygdala and our hippocampus that happened during trauma and therapies like EMDR actually treat and heal it. And it's miraculous. And I think that's so important for people to experience. Yeah. So just a little plug for any listeners that are newer to the podcast and don't know too much about EMDR. It's not voodoo. It's not magic. It is actually a, a biological process that we've just figured out how to tap into that to heal memories, heal traumas. And you can go back to previous episodes to learn all about that from a Christian perspective. We did a whole series on EMDR and trauma. So that's there if you need to listen to it. If you've listened to the Soul Grit podcast for even one episode, You know, my guests and I believe that when we integrate the power of God with the wisdom of modern psychology, we get supercharged healing, change, and growth in counseling. As a Christian therapist, however, I realize that there are many practitioners out there who are personally Christians but don't know how to integrate their faith into their counseling practices. That's why I created the e-course, Faith Integration for Therapists. In this premium five-module course, therapists who love Jesus will learn everything from understanding their calling to marketing their practices to Christians to adapting evidence-based interventions to honor our faith. 
You can learn more about the online course at www.soulgritresources.com courses and send an email to info at soulgritresources.com to receive a discount code. This brings me, Becky, to this question that I have. Um, some A skill that's very hard to teach people, I think, is about emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. And I know that's part of what you work with, but are there any things that are particular to Christians or to our discipleship when we're thinking about emotional regulation? Hmm. Well, I think before you can regulate your emotions, you have to acknowledge them and mm-hmm. accept them. Mm-hmm. If you have been taught to ignore, suppress, or distrust your emotions by the Christian books you're reading, by your pastor, by your parents, um, then you're going to be probably doing a lot of spiritual bypassing, which is using spiritual platitudes or ideas to push your emotions to the side. Um, you know, when you're feeling deep sadness over a loss and someone says to you, rejoice in the Lord always that spiritual bypassing, like that is not what Paul meant when he wrote those Mm -hmm. words, um, to ignore your sadness and pretend to be happy. That is not what it means when people are used to, uh, pressing aside their emotions, they can't even begin to regulate them because their only emotional regulation strategy is just ignore, ignore, ignore. Um, so I think the first step is to say, I have emotions. Emotions are normal. Jesus is emotional. God created me with emotions. My emotions are okay. My emotions are welcome. I can allow them to exist in my body. I can choose how I express them, even though that feels overwhelming. And it it can take a while to get to the point where you feel like you have choice in how you express them like that. There's a whole series of steps to get there. Um, But not equating emotions with sin um, and not thinking you're bad or weak for having emotions. So starting there and then learning how to regulate them with mindfulness, with uh, deep breathing, with calming exercises, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't even get to the point where you can regulate them until you just start to accept them. Okay. That's a good word. Now, I know you had mentioned to me also that you think there's um in our culture, we have this, oh, women are so emotional and men are more rational. And you said to me, that's just not true. So t- tell me more about that. <laughs> right. Well, it's a, it's a false dichotomy. Uh, and it's really drawn more from Greek philosophy than it is from scripture. Um, this it, It's really a false dualism. What neuroscientists are discovering about emotion in the brain and body now is that it's kind of a whole brain process that involves our body. So one of the leading theories on emotion that I'm using for my dissertation is Lisa Feldman Barrett's theory of constructed emotion in which she posits that emotions are concepts that we've learned over our lifetime. And each culture has its own set of emotion concepts. Mm -hmm. So you can learn new emotion concepts when you go to a new culture. Um, and when you experience, uh, a circumstance in your life, and your body starts to react to it, your mind will assign the most practical emotion concept to it that it can think of. And as it constructs that emotion, 
your mind is preparing your body to take action toward your goals and values. Right. So it's a very complicated process. Um, the more we learn to tune into our emotions, pay attention to those concepts, learn new concepts, learn how to express them, like the more in control of our emotions we are. Anyway, all that to say, men's and women's brains work the same way when it comes to emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, men's brains and women's brains are not different in the way that their concept systems work. So they are not different in the way that their emotions are constructed. But some cultures socialize men and women differently when it comes to which emotions they are allowed to express and how. Right. So men are generally in America allowed to express anger. anger. Women are not allowed to express anger. Women are allowed to express sadness. Men are not allowed to express sadness. But that is a product of socialization and cultural expectations, not the actual human capacity to construct emotion regardless of gender. Mm-hmm. So biblically, we see throughout the Old and New Testament, we see God's people being emotional in ways that were appropriate to their culture. And we see Jesus shaping the emotions of his disciples, male and female. And I think of it as uh, sort of emigrating to a new culture. I lived cross-culturally in the Netherlands for eight years and then had to reacclimate to U.S. culture. And Dutch people have different emotions than Americans do. And I had to learn them. And then I had to relearn American emotions, which was weird. But I think that discipleship is like entering a new culture. Yes. And I think that when Jesus brings us into the culture of the kingdom of God, there are new emotions that we can learn. And men and women are both called to be followers of Jesus and can both learn those emotions. So all all that to say, it is not true that, that women are more emotional than men. And it is not true that rationality or logic is the opposite of emotion. Thinking is part of emotion. Cognition is a big part of emotion. So our thoughts and our emotions are actually not separate, but they're all bound up together. And men and women's brains work the same. Okay. Yeah. It makes me wonder, like, in our in our culture, our American culture, do men have more work to do or do women have more work to do? Or we, do we both have the same amount of work, but just in different areas to kind of get to a better emotional place? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's an across the board answer to that. It might be kind of yeah. individualistic. Uh, I think in general at least among white Americans, middle class, like I think I can only speak to a subculture, Mm -hmm. like the subculture I grew up in, which is conservative Christian, white middle-class Americans. Mm -hmm. In, In that subculture, women have been allowed to be more demonstrably emotional than men while at the same time being taught to distrust their emotions. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a conflict there. Um, But generally women have been given more opportunities and encouragement to develop their emotional side mm-hmm. and men have not been. So I think in general, men have more catching up to do mm-hmm. in learning how to be emotionally mature and, and expressive in healthy ways, mm-hmm. simply because of the, they've had less socialization for it than women have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, just as an example, one of the uh, surprising things, I I work in Southern California, so um, very 
good blend of a lot of different cultures here, but um, I've seen several Hispanic, Mexican-American men, and they always get really surprised and somewhat perturbed at me because they'll say, Anne, you're making me cry, like as if they have never had an opportunity before to cry Mm -hmm. in front of someone else you mm -hmm. know, or maybe not even to cry by themselves and they're very su surprised to be in a therapy session with a white woman and find tears in their eyes where they're touching this deep emotional place and they think it's my fault but it's part of the process of what we're going through that's been really interesting as we just kind of look at culturally where they're coming from and that may be something they've never been allowed to express before mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. Yeah. And giving them space to learn how to feel and express their emotions is so powerfully transformative. Yeah. And in case any of those clients are listening, I'm just going to make sure I say that it's not just one client like that. It's been my experience across the board working with men, especially from a particular culture. It's been surprising for several people to be in that position. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've seen men do the same thing when I mm -hmm. say, yeah, your sadness really makes sense. I really hear it. They've not had anyone say that to them before. So I've experienced the same thing. Yeah. So you've said a couple of times, I've caught this phrase that you said, Jesus shapes the emotions of his followers. And I want you to mm -hmm. explain that to me. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So sometimes directly and sometimes indirectly, I think that Jesus is modeling some new emotion concepts for his disciples. Mm -hmm. And I always want to be careful when I say that, because I, when you become a Christian, I'm not arguing that you should abandon all of your natural culture bound human emotions. Um, there are very few, if any bad emotions, mm. um, there's, there's a culture that I've heard uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett talk about um, where like they have an emotion concept of like, it's time to go head hunting oh. and like the, the group emotion that comes up around that of like, okay, it's time to go like take justice on our enemies. I would say like, that's not an emotion that Jesus would want to cultivate. <laughs> okay. But there are not a lot of emotions in most cultures that I think have moral weight. You know, Jesus says, don't hate your brother. Mm -hmm. So that might be a particular emotion concept that Jesus would be like, let's not do that one. Mm -hmm. um, but hatred itself is not a bad emotion because we're supposed to hate sin, hate injustice, hate evil. So hatred is not bad. It has something to do with the object of our emotion. So Jesus, I think, validates normal human emotion um, and enters into that, you know, Jesus weeps when his friend Lazarus dies. Mm -hmm. Jesus is angry about injustice and financial and spiritual abuse in the temple. Um, Jesus is zealous for his father's house, which I think that is a particularly Jewish emotion. Mm. Jesus also was shaped by his culture and context. And so because he was inundated in Israel scriptures, Hebrew Bible, um, and probably also second temple Jewish writings that we don't have in the Bible, but we have in, in other forms. If you look through that literature, you see that 
this idea of zeal for God's house, zeal for God's name is a particular emotion in Jesus's culture. And so he shows that um, we don't like Americans don't have that emotion of zeal, mm-hmm. but we can learn it like in the same way that Jesus throws the money changers out of the temple has zeal for his father's house. Like when we see spiritual abuse happening, when we see people who are vulnerable being taken advantage of in church, like I think we can learn that emotion of zeal and fight back against that kind of corruption, right? I think that's us learning an emotion concept from Jesus and his culture. So Jesus demonstrates these emotions and then he also gives his disciples teaching about their emotions. Um, he like in when when Jesus is talking with Mary and Martha in Luke, um he says, Martha, you are worried and concerned about many things. And that is the same Greek word that Paul uses in Philippians too, when he says, be anxious for nothing. Hmm. Um, and I think in both cases, it does not mean don't have an anxiety disorder. Like I think we've, we err when we translate that word anxiety because of the medicalized context in the U S but I think the idea of it being like, don't be unduly concerned about temporal things. Like uh, don't be unduly concerned. Don't ruminate on these things. Um, but trust that God is going to provide for you. You, you don't need to ruminate on your anxieties and your worries. Hmm. Um, so he's like reshaping the emotion. Um, and he uses that word in the sermon on the Mount also, like, don't be anxious. Don't be unduly concerned for what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat. So he replaces that emotion concept. He says, instead have this future looking hope that God is going to provide for you because of God's faithfulness to you and God's people in the past. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, worry looks forward to the future with concern and hope looks forward to the future with trust. And so he's kind of like taking their worry and reorienting it to hope for the future. But it's like this very Jewish emotion of like reflecting on the story of how God has always cared for God's people, trust that God will carry that through for you. So it's like this new emotion concept of trust in God's provision. So, you know, and he, he, he teaches them about joy um, and he's full of joy by the Holy spirit in Luke 10, he teaches them about um, their fears. Don't fear this. Do fear this. Don't hate this. Do hate this. Um, don't love this. Do love this. So he's reorienting their emotions as well as their priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, I could go into it more, but it's going to take me a hundred thousand words of my dissertation to sort through <laughs> it all. So okay, I'll stop there for now. Okay. When will that be available for us? <laughs> I'm hoping to have it done in the next couple of years. So we'll yeah. see. Okay. We'll have you back on then. So you can talk okay. to us more about it. And- <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. So um, I told you, I always ask my guests towards the end of the interview, uh, what are you doing for soul care? But because you had kind of a a beefier topic that you wanted to talk about here, I'm going to ask you now. Um, 
And you told me you wanted to talk about internal family systems, which is not something Mm -hmm. I think we've really talked about on the podcast before. So tell us about your experience in therapy using IFS. Yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, I've been seeing a trauma therapist for almost five years now, and we've done EMDR, which was absolutely incredible. I highly recommend it, um, to process some of my traumatic experiences. Um, we've also primarily used internal family systems and I, I liked the modality so much that I went and got trained in using it. And it's one of the ways that I serve my coaching clients is with IFS. I use it in pastoral care as well. So internal family systems, um, came from family systems therapy, the idea that you can't just treat an individual in therapy, but you have to look at their whole context because each person in a family system interacts with each other and affects each other. So then Richard Schwartz applied that to our inner world and said, well, what if our mind is multiple and we have parts of us that can be in conflict with each other? What if we could bring them into harmony, alignment, integrity? Uh, or integration maybe is better than integrity. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the idea that we throughout our lives form protective parts of us to keep us safe in the world. But those parts can be really reactive. And in, if if we dislike those parts of us, like we're going to continue to have that internal conflict. But if we can approach those parts of us with compassion and curiosity and get to know them, we can bring healing to ourselves and we can... Um, feel more integrated inside. Um, not multiple in the sense of like, uh, dissociative identity disorder, right? Like not different personalities, but just different parts of us. It's like a way of facilitating better conversations with ourselves, just as someone might say, well, a part of me, you know, really wants to go out with my friends today, but a part of me would really like to just stay in and read. We kind of naturally use that parts language. So IFS just gives us an approach to talking to those parts of us. Um, And so it has given me so much compassion for myself. When I started, um, I had complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I was having intense physical symptoms from that. Um, And in the process of doing EMDR and IFS, I, you know, I went from a place of like, really not liking myself, n- not being sure that God liked me to now deeply, deeply loving and valuing myself and deeply believing that God loves and values me. It's a huge reorientation yeah. of my inner world. Mm-hmm. And so much of that healing came from learning to be compassionate toward myself, which has given me so much more compassion for other people. Now, when I'm talking to other people and they start to get reactive, I will think, oh, I see that an angry part of you is really reactive and I have compassion for that. What is causing that anger? Instead of getting defensive or getting angry back, it's easier to say, I see that something in you is burdened Mm. and that's why you're reacting the way you are. Um, But the fascinating thing about it is that Jesus modeled compassion for us in his ministry. One of Jesus's major emotions is his compassion. Jesus is constantly being said of by the gospel writers that he was moved with compassion. Right. And so compassion is this powerful healing force that Jesus modeled for us. Mm-hmm. And 2000 years later, Richard Schwartz and others who do parts work stumbled across that truth and realized, oh, hey, compassion is this really powerful healing force. But yeah, Jesus already told us that. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, having the chance to work with those burdened parts of myself and bringing them compassion. And sometimes even 
as a Christian IFS practitioner being like that burdened part of me would like to meet Jesus and really experiencing God's compassion for me has been so powerful. And I've seen that with clients as well. Yeah. Um, when, when appropriate and with their permission being like, Hey, like would that younger wounded child part of you like to meet Jesus and mm-hmm. receive his love and just beautiful healing happens in that moment. Yeah. That's pretty powerful. See, I wanted you to talk about this because I think this is one of those great examples of working through emotional, psychological, mental, this part that I always talk about in therapy, this has opened up a part of your spirituality that wasn't available to you before that part got healed, right? Yes. Yeah. Because it's so burdened that we don't want to touch it. And so we have all these defense mechanisms within ourselves that are like, no, actually, I don't want to talk about that thing that happened to me. We kind of shut down. We can have like a numbing part or a blocking part when we try to think about those things. But when we can gently work with the numbing part and the blocking part and be like, actually, I am capable of revisiting my painful experiences. I have this therapist sitting with me who's going to share their self-energy with me. Like they're going to help me compassionately witness these painful things I've been through. When we can like get that blocking part that's just trying to protect us to soften back mm-hmm. and really go there and look at these painful things and and help those parts of us release those burdens that, that they're carrying. Mm-hmm. It's so healing and freeing. Um, but it it's yeah, it helps us get past that defensiveness. And when we are defensive and don't want to go there, then Jesus can't touch those parts because mm-hmm. God is not an abuser. God does not coerce us. God does not force us. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is not going to push into healing parts that we don't want to look at yet. Mm-hmm. But having the tools to open ourselves up to that, like you said, lets Jesus into those places that before we weren't willing to look. Yeah. It reminds me of like an old youth group metaphor where the um, pastor had us imagine your your life as a house and to evaluate are there any rooms of your house that Jesus isn't allowed to go into, <laughs> you know, and, and how can we start opening those doors so that he can come in there? And it, and it sounds like what you're saying is that when we learn to be compassionate towards each of those parts, then also Jesus is allowed to come in there and to do his healing work, which is better than the healing work that we could do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that on a completely secular level, like IFS works because of the way that it, like you said, EMDR, like it, it works with the way our God made our brains to work. Like it is a tangible physical healing that happens. And so even without the spiritual level, like the modality works, Mm -hmm. but what I have seen from Christian practitioners and with Christian clients is yes, then you also can bring in spiritual healing to that. Yeah. And and receive something from God in a new way. And so it's not only an emotional healing, but can also be a spiritual healing. Mm-hmm. And, and that is one of the main goals with the podcast is that I want people to see that these like IFS or EMDR or CBT or any of these modalities that we might use were, no, they weren't created out of like a Christian worldview or anything like that. But they do work with God's common grace to the creation. And so when they work, 
and you layer in this part of yourself that that is your spiritual self or the part that's connected to Jesus. Like there's, it's actually a spiritual experience of, um, of healing, not just a psychological experience. Right. Right. Yeah. And just like doctors can treat our physical bodies. And I think that is the common grace that God's given to humans. Mm -hmm. And also sometimes God does healing miracles. Yeah, exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, this has been really great. I'm really eager for what's going to be next for you. And and I know you got a lot of work to do on your dissertation, but I'm eager to see what comes out of that. And I think you're doing really good work in the world. So I'm gl- glad that we met and that you were able to talk to my listeners as well. Yeah, thank you so much. I love the work that you're doing. It It is so helpful to break down the stigma against getting mental health help. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's so powerful for Christians to become licensed counselors and to get the skills mm-hmm. and to bring Jesus's healing to their clients. I think that's an incredible combo. Um, in addition to my doctoral coursework this semester, I'm taking a trauma counseling class at Wheaton's counseling school because mm-hmm. I might play with the, the connection of trauma and fear in the gospels. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of like looking into that connection there. And it's been, it's just been beautiful to be with these wonderful master's counseling students and to learn from this incredible professor, Tammy Schultz, and uh, you'd read the trauma healing textbooks. And so I, I'm, it just makes me happy to mm. see all these wonderful Christian counselors being prepared to go out and bring God's healing to people. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, if people want to follow your, your work, where can they find you? Yep. I'm on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, Instagram is at whole emotion. H W H O L E emotion mm-hmm. uh, on TikTok at Becky Castle Miller. And um, I have a sub stack, Becky Castle Miller as well. Okay. I'll put all those links in the show notes. Thanks again for being here. Thanks so much. The Soul Grit Podcast is a production of Soul Grit Resources. You can find more at soulgritresources.com or on the socials at Soul Grit Resources. You can email me at info at soulgritresources.com.